Welcome to An Economist Goes to College, a podcast about the economics of picking and paying for college. I'm your host, Beth Akers, economist and senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Today, I have Ben and Jenna Story with me on the show. Ben and Jenna are visiting fellows in social, cultural, and constitutional studies here at American Enterprise Institute. They are also professors of politics and international affairs at Furman University, where they run the Tocqueville program. In this episode, we'll discuss their new book called Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment, which argues that we pursue happiness in a way which actually makes us less happy. As university professors, Ben and Jenna have a front row seat to the malaise they write about among college students. As someone who tries to explain the dynamics of satisfaction with higher education on financial terms, I found their framing on the issue to be an intriguing compliment to my own. Today, we'll discuss how colleges and universities are sometimes making students restless and unhappy. Ben and Jenna, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us on, Beth. It's great to see you again. Thanks for having us on. Excited to be here. Absolutely. Okay, great. So I'm going to start out with a very, very basic question of why did you write this book? Sure. We wrote this book because my husband and I both teach at a liberal arts college, Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, at Furman, we have the chance to mentor students throughout their four years. We have It encourages us to spend a lot of time with them, helping them figure out what it is they want to do after college and why. And after many years of doing so, we noticed a disturbing trend that oftentimes our students were less certain about what they wanted to do and less confident in reasoning about, thinking about what they wanted to do when they left than when they came in. And we thought that was a problem. They've come to college in part to figure out these things. And something about the way we were telling them how to think about those things, whether explicitly or implicitly in the kinds of things we encouraged, uh, wasn't quite working. Great. And so why are we restless to kind of get right, right to the punchline here? To that question, one is an enduring human propensity. St. Augustine wrote all the way back in the fourth century that human beings are restless uh, until their hearts rest in God. But there's another dimension of this that is specifically modern, and that's the dimension of this that we try to deal with in this book, which is that modern human beings are taught to be wary of reasoning about the good life. That is, we're taught to be wary of arguments about what the old philosophers called the human good. And because we tend not to think about those sorts of questions, we instead tend to try to dabble our way to happiness. A little of this, a little of that, put it all together in a nice, beautiful collage, and hope this adds up to the life that we want. But it turns out, we think, that that kind of self-conscious or intentional shallowness doesn't really satisfy. And that's one of the reasons that we modern human beings might be restless in a distinctive way. Mm, okay, so no dabbling. Jenna, did you want to add to that? It's pretty evident that what many of our elite colleges and universities encourage their students to do is dabble, right? Just by the GER, the general education requirements system um, that most colleges have at this point, you're obliged to take a kind of smattering of courses all around the university. And um, how, how and why you're supposed to be taking 
that smattering of courses is really underexplained. So while it might be a great idea to get a kind of broad education like this, um, if you don't have a reason for why those courses, it becomes a kind of dabbling you know, activity, a kind of dabbling education. On top of that, you're kind of asked to do all these things outside of classes, right? You're almost told right away that classes aren't really the the deal of going to college. You've got to you've got to be involved in all these clubs, maybe found a club, you've got to get off campus quickly, downtown, you've got to explore other countries and so forth. And the result is that we are implicitly often encouraging our students to try to dabble our their way to happiness, as we say in the book, try out lots of different things without ever really pausing to think about what's most important or really giving them the tools to think about what's most important. Right. And, you know, your book is about much more than this, just this dissatisfaction that college students are feeling. It's really about a social issue. But do you feel like the higher education system and the way that we have defined colleges today is really central to the challenge or it's, you know, just a symptom of, of what you see more broadly? I think it's particularly acute in college because of, I think, some of the reasons that um, Jenna just described. But yeah, this is definitely an issue that we see much more broadly than simply what goes on in college. We see it in the people around us and we see it in ourselves. The college is a marker or a, a way station into the American elite and how elites think affect how everybody thinks and affects how our institutions run. Yeah, got it. You know, a lot of my work is trying to understand the dissatisfaction that we observe with higher education generally. And because I'm an economist, I'm trying to do that often in financial terms. So I'm looking at somebody who is paying 4% of their um, you know, pre-tax monthly income on student loan repayment and saying, what's the problem? You know, you, you got an affordable education, you've got a great job, you know, you you must be happy, right? Or everything all is well here. And you guys bring a different lens to that, which I think is helpful because it it adds to um, the lens that I have that doesn't qu- quite succeed in explaining the dissatisfaction that these individuals seem to be facing. Do you think that you know that this phenomenon that you have described in the book um, has something to say about the current discourse about dissatisfaction in higher education, which is leading to conversations like student loan cancellation and free college and all that? I think it might because I think um, the economic side of your life, the economic aspects of your life, whether you have a job that can you know, ha- easily pay your bills and give you a little extra money to do things that you you might just want to do um, is an an aspect of how happy or content you feel. But it's it can't it's not really the sum total of that, right? We all know people who have plenty of disposable income and yet are aimless or unhappy, right? I think. Um, so while that's that's certainly a factor, and you know, graduating a college. Um, and, and getting a degree that you expected to launch you economically in life. And if that that fails, that does cause unhappiness, but that's not the only thing. So I think a lot of the times you're telling the story of your life to yourself in a way that um, causes you to think that it's, it's purposeful or causes you to think that you're kind of lost. Even if you have a well-paying job, for example, you don't know why you're there, what you're doing with your, with your time outside of work. And it's that part that our book um, addresses much more uh, directly. You know, I think Jenna and I are 
both people who feel profoundly grateful for the educations that we got in college. And I think the reason we both feel really grateful for the educations that we got is that we did learn to think our lives through better as a result of what went on in some of our college classrooms. But I think that experience is not what colleges are designed to offer um, in our uh, in our moment. And in fact, I think it's an experience that lots of colleges would be afraid to say they're even trying to offer. That experience of, okay, I've thought my life through better as a result of being here, when that is absent for so many students, when they feel like I'm at college and I'm, I'm living in the words of, of William DeRezo, it's like an, like an excellent sheep. You know, I'm like a, a bionic hoop jumper. I run around from here, there, and the other place. I'm involved in all these activities and, and none of it's making me happy. Well, I get to the end of that experience and I'm going to be pretty discontent with what went on, particularly if it was grueling and expensive. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Say more about that. Tell me, you know, what did college used to be and what has it become such that people are no longer getting that skill of thinking through how to live their life as you described it? Well, I don't think we want to give the impression that there was a golden age of college where everything was just going perfectly and we just have to recover that that moment. Um, I think there are certain times and certain places in which education goes on better than others, right? So you could look at, I think, probably different specific colleges or classrooms um, to, to look at models. Um, but our liberal education today is based on overly skeptical premises, I think. You almost walk through the door and you come to expect that you're not, that there is no such thing as a better way of life, right? Because we are so skeptical of thinking that there is a kind of good that we could discern and talk about and argue about and try to figure out, right? Because the understanding of what's good is obviously not evident to any of us immediately. But if we come in with the premise that it's it's out there, we could discover it by, say, reading biographies or literature or working through philosophic examinations of the question of what makes a good or happy life, then we're engaged on a common, common quest to see that thing better, right? And I think it's that kind of education that um, allows us to to, to get the more uh, thoroughgoing, um, comprehensive, deep understanding of what makes life worth living and then go forth and try to make your life correspond to it. And after which you feel like your education really was worth it. That kind of thing is really worth quite a bit of money. It's hard to monetize, in fact. Let me just echo some of what Jenna was saying. We're not uh, pining for a return to the golden age of, of college. One of my most important experience in college was a very interesting one in the sense that my favorite teacher, the person who taught me to take the question of the good life seriously, was a perpetual adjunct, uh, someone whom the university kept in this kind of marginal status throughout his career, despite the fact that he was one of the most decorated teachers on campus. And so that let me know from an early age, not all is right in these kinds of institutions, insofar as the education that I found most valuable was not what the university held in highest honor or uh, or did the most uh, to reward or support. And I had the experience that we try to give to our students uh, in that teacher's classroom. His name was Larry Goldberg, by the way. I like to mention it as, as often as I can. In my own classes, I start with Plato's Gorgias, which is a text on the question of how to live. 
And the continual reaction I get from students when I put this in front of them is they meet this guy, Socrates, who is say, who is having an argument with a young man named Callicles about what constitutes human happiness, what constitutes human flourishing. And the overwhelming reaction of uh, the vast majority of my students is you can't possibly talk seriously about that question. These questions are matters of private opinion and can never be anything more than matters of private opinion. The interesting thing about that skepticism is that it's completely unearned. In other words, my students, when they walk in the classroom at 18 years old, are just like I was when I walked in the classroom when I was 18 years old. They haven't really thought about these things. They haven't been encouraged to think about them. And nonetheless, they think it's impossible to think about them. That's what we mean by a kind of unearned skepticism that we pick up from the environment around us. But there's something in us that knows we have to think these things through if we're going to live good lives. And what we want to encourage, and, and we think that's, that, that, that's something in us that knows that we need to think these, these things through. It's an unrequited desire that makes us deeply restless. And what about at the institution level, what hurdles are there to making education succeed more so in delivering that ability to students? I think the hurdles are really profound because I think um, the vast majority of college administrators and faculty don't actually believe that you can think the question of the good life through. In a serious way. And so they don't design curricula or orientation programs or anything else with a view to helping people think, uh, these questions through. So that's, that's one part of this. Um, there's also, you know, the, there's also the, the sense that universities have always played a variety of social roles. They've, they've sought to help people think through these kinds of questions, but they're also, of course, social elevators and they're also um, institutions that we hope will will help make our society more just, prosperous, and better. Um, and so there's all these competing pressures on a college education. People want it to be an awful lot of things. And right now, one thing one can see on college campuses is that there's a very powerful lobby for the university as engine of social justice. And there's a very powerful lobby on behalf of the university as an engine of um, of social mobility, but there's not much of a lobby in terms of advancing the university's essential mission to be a place that helps you think the good life through better. That voice on campus is weak. Do you think there's a fear that by talking about the, this thing that is the good life, that we are pushing too much uniformity or universalness on students that, you know, there's been so much emphasis on diversity of thought, which is a great thing, but has it led us away from the pursuit of thinking that there is a good way of living? Yes, Beth, I think that's precisely the reason that uh, many people anyway are leery of talking about the question of uh, the good life, right? That they worry that it'll just be a kind of um, instruction or catechesis in what the good life is, right? As if that were commonly available. Right. So it's a list of things. You've, you've got to go to church. You've got to get married. You've got to have kids, yeah. right? But it's not no, that. No, it's, it's, it's not really. And in fact, the kind of diversity of thought that I think most people go to college seeking, which is a diversity that results in a meaningful conversation, and sometimes the changing of minds and therefore somewhat greater 
uh, uniformity or not really uniformity, but somewhat greater um, agreement on some things among some friends, right? That kind of diversity, that kind of really interesting, fruitful, challenging diversity is really only found when you're pursuing the same thing, like the question of what is good. Or the question also of what is true, even the question of what is true in various fields, like biology or math, right? The question of what is beautiful in music, right? So these were focused on the good life, but these kinds of questions about ultimate things take different forms. And it's really in coming together as people with diverse perspectives and experiences um, on these things that we can actually find a kind of community that is never going to really be uh, as what did you say, homogenous or unified? I, I think that danger is a little bit uh, overrated. Right, right. Okay, so I want to um, ask you one question um, to set up um, me bringing in a very special guest interviewer for you today. And now this isn't like one of those, um, you know, reality TV shows where they bring in the mistress or the ex-wife or anything. But um, I do think we're going to challenge you guys a bit with these with these next questions. But I want to ask you one thing first. Uh, I think some could interpret, you know, the the implications of your work as being against ambition. How do you respond to that? This is an argument that we've heard in response to some of our when people read our read our book. I think in part they just they 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 notice the title, why we are restless, and the assumption is that well the opposite of restless is rest, and that that's what we're arguing for is that you should take it easy on the couch, go float around on a boat at a at a, at a lake somewhere, and and that and sounds good to me. I wish <laughs> you would tell me that. I would take that advice. Yeah, that's right. The, uh, go commune with being, <laughs> but. What we actually meant to argue for in this book is not that one should just hold still, but that one should transform the hectic dabbling that constitutes so much of college education in our time into a pointed quest, into a serious attempt to get to the bottom of what one, what might make one happy. That is, it's, you know, it's an extraordinary privilege to have four years of leisure. And that's what college is supposed to be. It's supposed to be leisure. And I think this is like totally shocking to college students today because they don't experience any leisure the, uh, while they're in college, but that's what it's supposed to be. And the structures for that are in some ways still there. Um, that's, it's time in which to figure out what you're going to aim at during the other 50 or 70 years of your life after college. And it's time that, um, in, in this sense, it's a, it's a really precious opportunity our society affords us to live lives that are better thought through than lots of people have had the chance to live over the course of history. Gotcha. Okay. Well, since it's been about a million years since I was of college going age and had to grapple with the sorts of ideas that we're talking about today, I invited Annika Nordquist, who is my research assistant at AEI, to join us for the conversation. And I know she has a couple questions for you guys along the same lines um, of this idea of ambition and and the practical implications of the 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 study that that you have undertaken with this book. So, welcome, Annika. And I'll let you take it away. Beth, thank you so much for having me. Uh, ben and Jenna, it's really an honor to speak with you. And it was an incredible pleasure to read your book. It was super interesting. So I just graduated from Stanford, which is in Silicon Valley, where restlessness and dabbling, I think, are really spoken of in a mostly positive light. And I think actually in America broadly, I often hear restlessness spoken of as a virtue. It leads to innovation and exploration, etc. 
And so I'm wondering, do you think that being against dabbling, do you worry that it'll make people less creative, uh, which I think certainly was the idea of dabbling a lot at my university? Or is there any risk that encouraging people not to be restless would inadvertently also encourage them to be less innovative? I'll take up the dabbling question, which was a really, really great one. Thank you so much, Anika, for your questions here. I think if you look at um, many of the great, say, artists or philosophers of the past, musicians, um, a lot of times we're struck by how almost single-minded they are. They're almost like fanatically single-minded, right? And even the most fruitful people that produce like an astonishing number of things. Let's take Aristotle, for example, because he's someone I'm really familiar with, right? He um, wrote treatises that still form somewhat of the foundations of biology and zoology, uh, physics. Um, he also wrote on ethics and rhetoric and politics. He wrote on poetry. I mean, so he could look like a dabbler. But <laughs> if you read his work, it has such a kind of intense focus to each thing. And if you know anything about his history, he kind of goes into a subject, right, with um, trying to figure out trying to delve into its deepest meaning, and then sees that you can't do that without, say, branching out and understanding what might look like a different field of um, experience, right? So he wasn't really just taking things to kind of check off a number of boxes or just to explore his world, right? He was trying to figure something out. And, and in doing that in this kind of intense way, he led himself to investigate all these different things and even to such a deep degree that he was able to found ways of thinking about these different disciplines that we still stick with today in some cases. A quick word to that, which is that I think the difficulty that young people on, I think, campuses like Stanford probably often experience is a difficulty in ranking the goods of their life. That is, there are lots of good things going on for such people. There are a tremendous number of opportunities. And the hardest thing to figure out is what you can say no to. Um, and so we end up in a, in a sort of game of perpetually rearranging all the different things in our life to somehow hope to fit it all in. If I just, you know, stick this in over here and, and, and you know, and if I, and if I, if I somehow manage to double dip that requirement, I'll, I'll, I'll get it all in and more. Three majors, two study abroads, you know, several internships, the whole thing. But I think genuinely creative people are people who are willing to be very single minded. Um, and sometimes that, that comes in the form of a kind of commitment that one gets from who knows where. But at other times, it can come from just having a really serious question and being really determined to think it through. And if it, if it starts off in poetry, well, maybe you study poetry for a long time, you find it's not giving you the answers that you want. And so, uh, you turn your, turn from there into physics. So that's what we're trying to, to, to encourage is that kind of intensity of questioning, not necessarily the assumption that one has the answers when one starts. That's very interesting. And uh, I have a quick follow-up based on that, because particularly, Jenna, as you were describing Aristotle, it makes me wonder if maybe you think the, the major system that we have right now is part of the problem, because the, you know, the links such as there are between physics and poetry are really not 
encouraged. Uh, and I, I was a double major. I did both classics, which is a humanities and linguistics, which is a social, social science. And my motivation for doing both of those fields was really the same kind of questions, but there isn't much of a link between them anymore. There used to be, and it's going away kind of for, for other reasons. Do you think that the system of kind of slotting different fields into like very particular boxes is part of the issue? That, that's a great question as well. Um, I guess I might first say that I think there's value to disciplines, right, which is what these departments are, right, to learning particular ways that people have um, developed over time to think about politics or economics or um, linguistics, right? And so you're not inventing those ways anew at first. I think most people that expand their fields first have been deeply trained in their fields, right? Um, but there is an alternative mode of education that is uh, something I've I had as an undergraduate and that we've been um, involved with at the graduate student and director level at the University of Chicago, which is education that is structured around a question. Right. So at the University of Chicago, there's a major called Fundamentals. And in that major, students are asked to propose a question in their senior year and you know, write an analysis of why they think that question is important and how they're going to explore that question, irrespective of discipline. Right. So they can take a number of different classes, but those classes are oriented around uh, helping them figure out a deeper, broader answer to that question. And I've seen that work very well um, as well. Gosh, Jenna, my initial reaction to that is, isn't that asking a lot of these young people who get to college and don't quite know what it is that they want to do with their lives just yet? I, I was the coordinator of this program. And so I would work with students as they develop these questions and they'd write it once when they applied to the program. And then they'd, they'd turn it in and we'd critique it and they'd, and they'd write it again and they'd keep developing it over the course of several different years. And they'd think it through with the aid of lots of different uh, fundamental texts. And they began from where they are, which is always deeply important in education. People think better about questions that they care about. And their questions also, and so it started from them, but they used help, uh, the help of their teachers, the help of the books they were reading, to think these things through better and to discover implications of them that they never might have imagined in the first place. You might start with a question about justice and end up thinking about metaphysics, which is not, what you, not where you expect it to go, but that's, that's where the question happened to lead you. Um, and, uh, and so in this sense, it was, a, it was a model of education that really sought to meet students where they are, but also to lead them toward a deeper understanding of the things they were curious about in the first place. Got it. That makes some sense. Might also add that the fundamentals major was, you know, not a major everyone chose. It was a number of self-selecting students who decided to organize their education that way. And it did put a lot of um, work on those students and uh, preparatory intellectual work on those students. But I think that um, everybody has questions that actually structure everything they do if you look at what you do from a certain perspective. So let me raise a, a quotation from our, one of our favorite teachers, Leon Cass. He said, a question is a form of desire, right? If you think about a question as a form of desire, and if you think about everything you do is actually based on some desire, right? Whether that's to make a certain friend or to sign up for a certain internship, whatever, everything you do is based on some kind of desire that you might be more or less 
aware of or more or less thoughtful about. So if you can make that kind of impulse desire into a question, then you can become more aware about what you're doing and why. Right. So I use that way of talking to many students who have, you know, they're not really interested in trying to approach education from in the way that the fundamental students approached it. They feel like that's too much for them. I get them to think about whatever it is they're selecting, whether that be a major, what what have you, as a kind of attempt to answer a question that is deeply buried within them. And that actually helps them find the way through that major, for example, more in a more meaningful way than just thinking, oh, I have to take these four classes and then I get to electives. Um, what am I trying to figure out by being a politics major is is the best way to, to make your way through. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um yeah, I'm trying to think back to my 18-year-old self and imagining how I would approach those questions. And I'm not sure I would have been one of the students who was quite ready for it, but I think it's a really intriguing way to think about framing that process. Uh, Annika, did you want to ask one more question? Yeah, um, that was super interesting discussion. Thanks so much. Uh, a question on a slightly different track. Uh, I think your book did a really admirable job of describing the kind of student who succeeded in the college setting. Uh, however, I do feel like so many of the kids who I knew in high school and I was involved with a lot of kids who were going to go to top schools and were doing this very intense extracurricular standardized test, et cetera, grind. And they were some of the smartest and most driven people I knew in high school, but so many of them arrived at top universities and I think completely collapsed to mental health issues. Or if they didn't completely collapse, I think, or, you know, graduating college just as unhappy as, you know, when they arrived. Um, and I think a lot of people dismiss that just as academic burnout, but my inclination is that it's a little bit more complex than that. I'm wondering if your book has anything to say about those kinds of kids who I think college kind of failed. I think that's a great question and an important observation about what's really going on in the lives of young people. When we speak of dabbling in the way that we do, it can sound like this life is a little bit of a uh, is a little bit lighter than it actually feels to I think people who are in the midst of it. I think what we're trying to describe, though, is that when you don't think the question of your life through carefully on your own with the help of teachers and the best that has been thought and said about this question, even if you have like convictions or, or things that you say when people ask you, like, what do you want to do when you leave college and so on and so forth, you're going to feel uneasy about those things because you haven't, you don't have a firm foundation for believing them. And so you're going to get very interested in the opinions of the people around you. You're going to use that to try to justify in your own eyes the ways in which you're spending your days. And so one of the philosophers that we talk about in the book that we've written, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, describes people like this as drawing the sentiment of their own existence from the opinions of others drawing the sentiment of their own existence from the opinions of others. That is, you know, it's. I think our, our phrase for this now is photos or it didn't happen, <laughs> right? Like it, you have to sort of get social validation for everything you're doing. The, um, if, it, if, you're, if you are going to feel like it's real. And so I think that's part of what you're describing in this, in the ambitious striving of the high school, as you know, and it should be no surprise that, People who live lives like this, which, which really are difficult and exhausting. That's one thing about, you know, top level contemporary college students is they're not lazy. Um, it, this is really an exhausting grind, but insofar as it doesn't have a well thought through purpose at its core, yes, it is going to leave people feeling like they've been running on a hamster wheel for no reason. 
And um, that is something I think you're right, Annika, to say we're not we shouldn't be blaming people for feeling like this. They're doing what they've been taught to do. And we need to think better about how we're encouraging both high school and college students to think about the education that they're getting, the lives they want to live, if we're going to get them out of that sort of hamster wheel feeling. Annika, thanks for bringing a younger perspective to the conversation. Uh, Ben and Jenna, I want to push you guys with one more question here. So, um, you know, I know that your book is is not a self-help book. It's an academic inquiry into these ideas. But I do really want to get practical and say, you know, if you're sitting down with your own children as they approach college going age or, you know, friends or family, um, what are the things that you're advising them on? I mean, the, the things that people are struggling with as they think about going to college is where do I go to school? What do I study? Do I go to school at all? I mean, how do you, how do you advise in a practical sense on those questions? Well, one thing that um, we've thought of as our daughter approaches college, and she's 15, so this is fast approaching is that one of the ways we will try to gain insight into different campuses is to see how the students are using their leisure time, right? So we will visit, we'll try to visit the best classes, but we'll also see if we can discern how the students are using the time they have free of adult supervision, right? Because that's a test of how well they've, they're really thinking about what's, what's worthy, right? What they do when they're not being watched in a sense. And if they're able to extend, you know, their, their, their best selves in a sense into the unsupervised time, then that would be an indication that's a place we'd want our daughter to go. Tell me more about what that looks like. Like, what is, what's the ideal where you think, oh yeah, that's a great school <laughs> well, for you. Yes. And I know it's not the no, same for uh, everyone. And I guess what my mind goes to is a bit self-referential because my husband and I have tried to create such an environment in which students would be motivated to take the best of what they might be learning um, beyond the classroom. And, you know, we sort of systematically approach that by having a, a group of a group we call the Tocqueville program. They take courses with us. We do some extracurricular clubs. We also take them on retreats. But the goal of this program was to get them to find friends who were like-minded and who just wanted to go through life in a serious yet playful way and talk to each other about the most important things and you know form all sorts of relationships that go beyond uh, their college years. And um, the point is that we can just you know, we don't have to be there all the time asking them to have a conversation about what the good life is, that they'll just go off to dinner and go contra dancing and um, go on trips together and continue these kinds of meaningful conversations, surely in a far more, you know, fun and ridiculous way than they do in front of us, but still forming deep bonds um, in, in, in the shared quest. So I think this also needs to start earlier than college. So we're lucky enough to be able to send our children to a um, to private schools, but the schools that we've chosen for them, while they're very intensive in certain ways, are not that focused on the question of where you go to college. You know, they're not. We're not doing SAT prep courses the uh, all the time. We're not, you know, constantly inviting in prestigious college counselors. They're really intense about poetry and uh, Latin and, and things like um, things like this. And I think it's very important for people who are in positions of privilege, uh, as we're lucky enough to be in, not to constantly be asking, you know, 
is this going to help me get ahead in my ferocious scramble to the very top rungs of American life? There are other aims of education than that. And we're not saying that it's not important that people make a good living. We want people to be able to, um, to be able to do that. But I don't think that they should be focused on the college admissions game nearly as early as they often are. Right. How about major? That's one that seems like a tricky question for a lot of young people, and I'm sure one that you encounter when you're advising students. When I'm, we're advising students to think about what major they want to commit to, it's really, you know, there is no one major or set of majors that are good and others that are less worthy. It's really how you're thinking about engaging in that major or why you want to to, to major in, in that field, that is the most important thing. So we've advised students, you know, who've majored in everything from chemistry to accounting, history, politics, that's our department, English, you know, all over the map. And uh, many of them are involved even in this Tocqueville program. So we continue to kind of mentor them as they go through college and become, you know, more deeply involved in say chemistry or what have you. And um, whenever they ask me, oh, should I major in you know, economics or history. I just say, well, why economics, right? You always <laughs> why, say economics. Why? Why do you want to do? Why do you want to do that? What is it you're trying to get out of that, right? Um, and the question is, are you thinking of, that? I'm always asking to myself and asking them is, are you thinking about it well? So if they give me a good and thoughtful answer, that is seems to me is going to sustain like further investigations into that topic or a lifetime of engagement with that discipline, um, then it's a good major. But if so, you can take any major and you can do it well or, or poorly, right? Um, One thing I'll, I'll add to that quickly is that many of our students come in thinking about that they come in for these conversations, not asking like, what should I major in? But should I have two majors? Or should I potentially have three majors? The uh, <laughs> And without offense to Attica or Beth or, or, or anybody else. I was a double major too, Annika. Don't worry. Our typical advice is do less better. That is, do one, do a single major, do it very well, and don't treat electives as if they were just uh, superfluous nonsense. There's a lot that, you know, in my own case, I saw in my elective classes that I wasn't taking because they satisfied any kind of requirement that ended up being crucial for how I live the rest of my life. And I think the assumption that like, I'm going to make this decision, I'm going to choose something hard and demanding, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to spend all of my college time checking off um, requirements on the lists of various departments really squashes some of the experience that people can have in college of investigating something that you were kind of curious about, but never really thought was going to be your thing at the, um, at the outset and discovering, oh, actually, this is a more direct way to get at the questions I really care about than that other thing, which I've been uh, thinking I was going to do since I was 14 or whatever. Well, great. I think we're about out of time, but Ben and Jenna, thank you so much for the conversation today. It's really fascinating. And you pulled me outside of my comfort zone since we're not strictly talking about financial return on investment. It's this whole bigger happiness idea that I guess is more than just money, as you say. Um, but thank you so much. Um, listeners, their new book is called Why We Are Restless on the Modern Quest for Contentment. Check it out. It has so many interesting ideas. Thank you so much to both of you for being here. Thanks, Beth. This was a great conversation. Thanks, thanks Anika, as well. Yeah, thanks to you both. We really appreciated all your questions. It was lots of fun. If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to learn more, 
please subscribe to the show and also check out my new book. It's called Making College Pay and is available right now on Amazon. Have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions for me? It would be great to hear from you. You can send me a note from my website, bethacres.com, and find me on Twitter at Dr. Beth Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.